welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. I am your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also the executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. Find out about our work at chicagojustice.org. Get involved at cjpnation.org. Look at our transparency website on the Chicago Police Board at cpbinfocenter.org. So we are season two, episode 14. Today, we are featuring an interview we did last week with Alderperson Michael Rodriguez of the 22nd Ward, formerly of Enlase, Chicago, which used to be Little Village Community Development Corp. He is now an Alderperson and I believe committee man in the 22nd Ward of Chicago. We're going to talk to him about crime, violence, justice issues in Chicago, including the uh, curfew, among other things, Mayor Lightfoot. All of that will be on the show today. If you are listening today, you can get the video. We're going to start putting the videos of our podcast back up on YouTube and probably Facebook, so you can find them there. If you're on YouTube, welcome. Really appreciate it. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can get us pretty much anywhere. You can get your podcast now. Before we jump into the interview, we just launched yesterday our 15th anniversary fundraiser. You can find links, go to our website, click on donate, be a part. You can also go um, to our social media, get links. Twitter, um, Instagram, Facebook, it'll be all up there. And if you want to raise us, help us raise money, we would love that. You can reach out to us, raise us a hundred bucks, 500 bucks, a thousand bucks, reach out to us at info at chicagojustice.org and we'll get you set up with your personalized uh, webpage that'll track funding um, donations that are strictly to you or from you. And we're paying real quick on just some litigation updates that are going on. This week, a little later today, I'm recording on Wednesday, July, or July, June 22nd at 1132 Eastern time. In a few hours, we are in a court again against the Metropolitan Police Department here in the District of Columbia's District Court. Um, FOIA violations around gang affiliation data. They totally ignored our FOIAs and just told us flat out no's. They, it would take too long to even look if we have these records, flat out denials to all our FOIAs. Then out of the blue, months later, they turned over some documents and then to try to alleviate in a weak attempt to try to alleviate some of the uh, counts in our lawsuit, they turned over 600 pages of documents related to gang affiliation, who's in the database or you know the demographics and things and reasons why people are in their gang database. We are currently analyzing that um, in conjunction with this lawsuit. We'll pay attention to our social media you can get all the information and go to our website and sign up for our email and you can get um, updates there also. Okay, so I will be back after the interview. Uh, Michael is a longtime friend. We've done work together. He's um, really interesting, smart guy. And I think you'll really enjoy our conversation. We'll be back in a little bit. Michael Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Tracy, it's good to be here. Good to see you too. I know it has been way too long, me sitting here in DC. Then we had a pandemic, so I was never back. All right, for those who don't know, Michael Rodriguez is the uh, alderman in the 22nd Ward, which is mostly covering Little Village, if I'm correct with that. A little bit of North Lawndale mm -hmm. and also uh, significant parts of uh, the Midway Airport area. Whoa, all right. That, that area has always intrigued me. It um, is. Right. All right, so we're here to talk about crime justice issues, our mayor, a little bit of the upcoming um, elections, 
Um, God, you, on these topics, we could probably talk forever. I'm really, um, anyways, before I start going off, I'm just gonna start asking you questions and go off while we're doing this. Okay, sir. So let's just say overall, if you were to give Mayor Lightfoot, if you could come up with a grade for Mayor Lightfoot on police reform, oh. cons considering how she came into office with the police accountability task force behind her and the report and the rhetoric about it, what would your overall grade on just on police reform and justice issues be? Well, you know, I'm not beyond grading people, but um, I, I'm not going to answer the question with a grade, but I will say I'm disappointed. I, I think, you know, I came in to this office as someone who was on the Juvenile Justice Commission as appointed by Governor Quinn, board president of the Juvenile Justice Initiative. Um, I was director of violence prevention in LASA. Uh, you know, I've spent a lot of my time in the criminal justice world and juvenile justice world and you know, we've had an arc of change that's been positive as far as I'm concerned. But most recently, that has certainly shifted in the wrong direction. And quite frank, I think the mayor has also shifted in that direction. Uh, very unfortunately, um, when I see the victim's justice ordinance and her curfew effort, both really go against what the field knows about criminal justice reform, I am not happy. And uh, quite frankly, I've spoken out against it. I will tell her uh, that I'm not happy. She knows it. Um, and you know, we have to figure out a collective way to address these issues um, that are proactive, that are progressive. And what that means to me is that they're effective. They work uh, and they're based in data and they make our community safer. So like, that's what I'm invested in. I don't know if, um, you know, that's shared. I think people use this issue um, politically far too often, and that's at the expense of safety in our neighborhood. So no, I'm, I'm not happy with your performance on this issue. Um, I will say we've worked together on increasing violence prevention dollars in our city's budget. That I'm very favorable for in her record. Um, I do have to give people credit where credit's due, um, but largely, you know, disappointing. One of the biggest failures I, I thought um, that the mayors had is when the George Floyd's protests hit Chicago. And let's not talk about Brown missing that they were coming to Chicago and what force that was going to come. I think everyone else in the justice world in Illinois, the sheriffs, the state police, everyone else knew but Brown. And that was a horrific failure. But one of the biggest failures that I've seen is that when there were people on the street talking about defund and let's have these conversations, the mayor kind of immediately shut that down. Instead of taking an opportunity, I think, where she could have said, you know what, I don't agree with all the tactics that are going on, and we need to stop the violence, the looting, um, other things, but we need to take the concerns of what's going on, the concerns of the people on the street, we need to take them, and we need to use this as a moment for to really start a, a conversation about what justice, reallocation of some justice funding could look like. And bringing those people in in the street to start that conversation. I'm not saying I'm like, for her, I would be like, I'm not saying I'm going to defund the police, but I want to know what the people want. And let's have a, a citywide conversation about this. Let's bring in the domestic violence people, the sexual assault violence people, the uh, anti-gun people, all these people. Let's bring them in. What does it look like? What, do, what would we need to build up? Um, and I think her outright dismissal of that was a mistake. Um, and I think it could have, could have, we could have, 
made an opportunity for those people to come into the process rather than excluding them outright. You know, Tracy, I know the Chicago Justice Project very well. We work together a lot. We should probably talk about that and, and give that disclaimer. We've uh, yes. been on the same side of a lot of issues and worked together intimately for over a decade, right? Maybe two decades now. Um, I campaigned and I continue to want to be that guy that wants to bring everybody in. I think a philosophy of bringing everybody in, bringing everybody to the table works. I'll give you an example of where I thought the mayor did a, a fine job on the Fair Work Week ordinance, where uh, Alder Person, Alder Woman, uh, Susilowski Garza was the chief sponsor. I was the number two on that bill, right? And we sat at the table with the Retail Merchants Association. We sat at the table with the hotel folks and all these other groups that we might have been on the opposite side of, given that both Sue and I are major labor supporters. Um, and we listened and we made changes and we got to a place where the vast majority of us could agree. My apologies. I've got to turn off my, um, I don't, I don't know how to turn off the phone. That's thing right. Here. My apologies. But I think that was an example. We came together to resolve an issue and the way you resolve issues for the long term is by bringing multiple people to the table. And the fact is, listen, I am on the progressive wing of the democratic party when it comes to criminal justice reform. I believe in data. I believe in doing things that make sense for communities. I believe in investing in preventative services, right? So, you know, but I'm, I also am not on the farthest left on the issue, right? Like I have very strong relationships with police. I have very, uh, I, I, I invest heavily in community policing efforts. I'm very proud to say that I walk 26th street um, with some of our police that were that are from the neighborhood uh, to try to build those relationships and engage in real deep relationships. I think that's how you build police community relationships that are beneficial to solving crime. But if you're going to outright just exit people out of the process and keep people out, I'm the type of person I believe in a tent, you want people on the inside pissing out versus on the outside pissing in. And that's how you get things done. That's how I want to govern. Yeah, I mean, I just, I think it just added fuel to the discontent that was out there. Instead of saying, we've heard you, we need to stop what is going on in the streets. Um, we've heard you, we're going to take that process, we're going to enter you into the process. Um, and I think um, and then our, next, our next issue here is the mayor, next question I want to talk about is, um, and I think to some degree it's happened, it seems like the mayor, because she cut positions in her first budget for the police department, that to some degree, the mayor was in her own way, sort of moving towards a defund the police, but under stealth. And that bothers me because then it can engage you and the community in, well, where do we stick that 30 million or whatever it is we're saving from not having these positions? Where do we spend that 30 million? And if you do it by stealth, she gets to decide or her and her people get to decide. And the people of Chicago and their legislators like you don't get to have that conversation. Well, that's the issue with uh, limited aldermanic prerogative, right? Like, listen, I came in on a, on a, again, on a spectrum of politicians. Again, I was okay with limiting aldermanic prerogative, particularly when my neighbor to the south of me is holding up uh, uh, Burger King driveway permits for campaign contributions or private uh, legal work, right? That's wrong. That, that shouldn't be allowed. And we've got to limit that. But also government is at its, at its best when there are systems of checks and balances where 
the aldermanic legislative body is able to check the executive mayoral branch. And I think there's been overreach uh, this term and we've got to create that balance where there is limited aldermanic prerogative where um, folks can't do what's been done in the city, but at the same time, we can't allow bureaucrats to run rush out over community. And that's kind of what's happened at times in this administration as well. Um, and I think it's speaking to your larger issue around police reform, right? Here's what happened with empowering communities for public safety. You had a coalition with CPAC and a coalition with GAPA that weren't seeing eye to eye, but they came together to resolve their differences. And I gotta give a lot of credit to my buddy, Andre Vasquez on the North side and Matt Martin and others. And forgive me for naming names because you always forget people, but for, for urging that coming together. And I was for that coming together from the get because I was an early sign on to both efforts. But the fact is that they created the community power that moved that effort forward and it's making it reality now. And you know the, the, the mayor was vehemently opposed from the get it seemed until right up at the end where we knew we had the votes. We, had a, we knew we had the super majority of votes in city council uh, as the whip of the progressive caucus, I could detest. I moved some conservatives over. I moved some middle ground folks over because that's just establishing relationships, good relationships. I think there's a lot to learn from that effort from the aldermanic perspective. Um, but I think it, it really speaks to what you're trying to, to talk about, bringing everybody in so that there's space for dialogue. That doesn't mean you have to sacrifice your ideology or your values, but it means you try to get things done and get as much as you can out of the process to move things forward for our neighborhoods. And I think that's what, that's what we need. Right, and it seems, my next question was about the community commission. I was involved um, after the Laquan McDonald tape came out, and if I got the timing right, it was released on Wednesday of Thanksgiving in 2015. I was involved, uh, the Chicago Lawyers Committee for um, Civil Rights held this large meeting. I was involved in it. We got con I got contacted personally by Community Renewal Society looking for ideas. And I am the one that brought up, I brought up the auditor. I wanted it separate from the IG's office and ended up getting into the IG, but ended up resulting in the Public Safety Inspector General, which I think has done a great job for what they're empowered to do. But I was involved in that process and out of, that was when we were also gonna uh, eliminate um, well, IPRA, the Independent Police Review Authority and create COPA, the Citizen Office of Police Accountability with more powers and new staff. And at that time, that's when GAPA got formed and that's when CPAC got formed. And ROM was going to possibly pass one of those versions back then. And those groups wanted time and Mayor Lightfoot, because I was in meetings with her we were criticizing the mayor and we pushed the mayor to wait and let the communities have a say in what got pushed. Okay, fast. So that's, you know, summer of 2016, the community groups and us go to mayor and say, don't rush the community commission, let these organizations, these coalitions go back to their communities and find out how it should be built. Okay, three years later, the mayor becomes, uh, Lori Lightfoot becomes mayor. One would have thought, given the rhetoric and given the history, this is ideal situation for the community commission. And then it seems to take forever, given that it already had been three years in the making for it to pass. And I, I don't, I've never, I've never understood what the mayoral, it seemed like mayoral resistance to the community commission was. I get people that are very pro-police 
I get that to some degree, although I don't know how you can say the police departments operated perfectly. And this is what you want to keep going over 40, the next 50 years. But did, I mean, did the alderman have an idea of what like real genuine concerns were that the mayor had around the community commission? Well, I think there were some legitimate legal concerns about what was, um, what was potentially implementable uh, via state law. I think there were some elements of some of the proposals that probably wouldn't have passed muster and would have required significant uh, state uh, ordinance change, uh, legislative change from the state. So, you know, I get those concerns, but I, I think it was, <laughs> if you're just talking about that, there's, there's larger issues here um, that are really around control. And when I think about the elected school board and this issue, those are the two pieces where, you know, you campaign in poetry and govern in prose. Well, this is more than that. Yeah, it is essentially about uh, control. You know, I give credit to the mayor for coming around at the end, but there was a number of years there where we were looking at it sideways, like, we, we know what's going on here. Um, it's a loss of control. And, you know, once you get in that seat, you know, you, you, get, you get scared of um, who's making decisions. And in some respects, I understand that because at the end of the day, when you talk about schools and police, the mayor is gonna be the person held accountable by the voters. Uh, older persons are also held accountable by their, their local constituents. But in many ways, you know, I'm able to bifurcate my constituents in certain ways. And I have real relationships with them that, that have been going on for all my life. I'm a lifelong resident of my ward, right? Um, and even in the new parts of my ward that I had not grow up in over by Midway, my dad lives over there, right? So it's like there's real relationships over there. And, um, you know, being the mayor of the city, it's a diverse city. There's no way you're going to have relationships with everyone, right? Yep. Um, so listen, I kind of get um, why she was scared of losing control. But in, at the end of the day, this is democracy. It's about checks and balances. And we need more of that. And that's what community control of the police is all about. It's not about um, non-police forces now getting into the day-to-day -day operations of the police. It's about accountability. You know, any profession that purports that all of their members are perfect saints, I question that. Oh, yeah. And that's what we had in our police force over decades. We need yeah. to make, make the, uh, the, 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 the community feel like, the police are on their side and not working against them in far too long. We haven't had that. Now, I'll give police a lot of credit. A lot of my police officers want to do the best work that they possibly can and partner with us to do good work. But if you've got some bad apples and we're not holding them accountable, that's unacceptable. And we got to change that. And that's what accountability is all about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my personal feeling, we can kind of go backwards here a little bit about like bringing the people on the street and defunding everything. The more we can take problems off of the plate of the police who are not able to solve those problems. Yes, if there is yes. violence going on, like a domestic violence incident, and there's domestic violence going on right now, yes, we need the police to respond. But there's got to be follow-up. They're not the solution. They're not the cure. They know this. I think if you talk to average individual officers, especially yes. good ones, they know that there is a system that they're not able like. Um, they're not able to find fixes. I'll give you uh, a friend of mine was on a, a citywide team and he was uh, working security undercover for the uh, marathon, mm -hmm. right? Look, they're looking at bo for bombs and stuff. And I ran into him with my dog, walking my dog. And he's like, 
hey, can you take that money? This is during Ram. So this is around probably the marathon of 16. And he's like, right after Ram announced a thousand office or higher, he's like, can you take that money they're giving us for those thousand men and give it to the communities on the West side? Mm-hmm. He goes, we are not the solution to everything that's going on there. We're just not. Well, they like, have to be part of the solution, right? No, no, right. But they're not the whole thing. They're not right. the whole thing. And you know what? Right. They admit it. And every cop I've talked to, every police officer I've spoken with says the same. Um, the fact is, is that we need everybody in. That's the first point, all in. But, you know, you, you were speaking about some specific things that I want to go a little bit further in depth on. Yep. You know, we need a non-police first response. Are you yes, kidding me? This works all over the country in different parts of the country where we have mental health responses by police. The other thing I'd say, I'm listening to the young people in my community and throughout the city. Like I, I, I don't see a need for policing in, in this environment where we have over-incarceration of black and brown youth. Um, you know, I really question SROs, their use. We need police on the streets working to prevent violence where it's at. And <laughs> don't get me started on our federal system and the availability of guns in our communities. Like, this is an all-in approach, right? Elected officials have to do their part federally and here locally. You know, we need community members. We need social workers. Listen, I'm a, you know, I'm graduate of SSA, uh, School of Social Service Administration, master's degree. We need, you know, mental health first responders to be the responders for mental health crises. But you know what else we need? and what works, and this is how we first met. I was running violence prevention programs in Little Village where we had outreach workers on the streets and they were targeting our most at-risk youth and we were able to identify them at a very young age and throw resources at them, after-school programs, mental health counselors, professional mental health counselors, but then also youth mentors that have been through um, God's challenges in our world, but have overcome those challenges and found God themselves or found education or work themselves. Those are such inspirations to our community, those outreach workers that are in our neighborhood. You know, we've led with that angle here in our neighborhood, but then also bringing our community policing initiatives in. Our outreach workers will tell you, we need police at, uh, we need police at times. We need them. We need them to be a partners. So it's an all-in approach. And that's, that's, that's mostly what I think we need. Right. And we got to have, you got to have money and you got to have the dedication of public officials to do that. And like I had an office at Wacker and Wabash and they changed the damn flowers four times a year. Right. I mean, I don't know, maybe once and then use that other three times, the money on other three times in other places, you know, a hundred million for that stadium by McCormick place. And we can go on and on. I think there's massive TIF abuse. Um, it's not like TIFs can't do anything, but the TIFs, like we got billion dollars off budget that the mayor gets to control every year is obscene in the city that has so many needs and communities with so many needs. We could build up those responding services, mental health services, worried on domestic violence, anti, real anti-poverty programs, development. I mean, that's where, like when I look at community, like long-term violence reduction, we, we have to start, we, my, pep, my dog has a, you know, wants to chime in here. I'm a dog lover, so you go right ahead. All right, so, um, sorry guys, there's nothing I can do working home to stop her from barking, but- That's okay, um, and you know what? I, I think your dog has a great point. She's agreeing with me uh, and saying everything I, I'm saying is true and right, yes. and you know, uh, she's voting for Mike in 2024 and later. 
I'm 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 sick of personally. I'm really sick of every all these people in all these communities. They just have to make better decisions. It's like you grow up in the abject poverty, no jobs, schools crumbling, no mentors, right? You grow up in that environment, uh, drugs, violence. I had a kid. I used to teach at the University of St. Francis out in Joliet, and almost all white, rich kids. I didn't realize it's forty-eight thousand dollars a year to go to it. That's when I took their job, small little private school. And um, black kids are mostly athletes. All right, for one second, I'm going to drive my <laughs> You know, listeners, I want you to know that Tracy yelled at me to make sure I was in, the, in a quiet space. And <laughs> it's fine. We'll see if she comes back to quiet down from the treats. But um, so if they were black, they were almost all athletes, unfortunately right? Or fortunately, but there were very few black kids. And I was teaching a class talking about policing and the kids stayed late and a, a black kid and really smart. And he was like, Oh, I used to go to, um, I used to go to, I had a scholarship out in California. Um, but I, my mom wanted to see me play. She, we, I grew up in Austin. Um, and I, so she had begged me to come back to Illinois cause she can't afford to come see me. So, um, this is, I told her, this is as close as I'll get. And I'm like, oh, he goes, yeah, I will never spend a night in Austin ever again. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh, Tracy, all my friends, they're either dead, in jail, or in the process of getting out of prison. He goes, I'm never, I'm never going back. He goes, I go back to talk in the schools to talk to kids, but it's the first thing in the morning. It's at 9 a.m. I make it at 9 a.m. I go in, I do what I leave. I'm like, oh, he goes, Tracy, my entire family, uncles, they're all drug dealers. That's what they had to do to survive. I'm the only one that made it out. I'm not going back. And it's like, wow. Now come up with an easy solution to that. You know, and a lot of people who will look at him and say, see, anyone can do it. He did it, anyone can. It's like, no, he's the cream of the crop. That's why he was able to do it, right? But it was really, it, that was like such an eye-opener for me. I was like, holy cow. Tracy, at, at the age of nine and 11, uh, I lost my, uh, one of my uncles uh, to drug addiction and another to gang violence, essentially. And, um, you know, the men in my family were largely either absent or there with major issues. Um, you know, I've, I've lived this, um, and, you know, there's so much to be said about systematic oppression of communities, of people. I mean, let's think about it. In the early eighties, we had 500,000 people incarcerated in, in our country and stayed in federal penitentiaries. Then we had a war on drugs, which really was a war on inner city communities. Yep. And we now have like 2.5 million people in federal and state incarceration detention centers with no drops in these, you know, purported drug usage categories. Um, I think about all of the tough on crime mentality back in the eighties and how it's kind of reinventing itself now. Mm -hmm. um, but then I think back, to the fact that I had such a challenging upbringing in that same time frame, um, but there were such strong women in my life, like who were mentoring me and saying, "No, you're going to college. You're going to be in school. 
And all of my cousins are now, all of my family members, my siblings, or most of them, I should say, are now college graduates, a doctorate here or there, leaders of businesses. Um, but it was that real love that was shown to us. You know, we were, we were, we were, we were, we were hugged. We were giving gifts. We were in all sorts of gifts. I'm not just talking about the physical Christmas yep. kind of gift. Um, we were involved in after-school programs at a very young age. You know, one of my distant relatives who landed on on uh, on Normandy on D-Day, Joe Bellman, um, who's the the grandfather of one of my cousins I'm on his mother's side, his father's side, on, on my side. I remember him getting us involved at a very young age in after-school programs and in a, in a national Hispanic leadership program. Um, and now, you know, my family members, my cousins are all like leaders of labor unions and, you know, business owners and leaders of nonprofits in the foundation world. And like, man, we're doing it right as far as I'm concerned. What a mentality, right? To love and support and to invest in, right? versus to just have a punitive sense towards a group of people or a community. I've experienced it. I've, I've, I know what it's like um, to have that love and support. I think we need to offer our young people, particularly those who are at the highest risk of being the victims or perpetrators of violence, I think we need to offer them that love and support. Uh, don't get me wrong, I, I do think there are some people in our society who you know, do need to be incarcerated and who do need you know, time to you know, rehabilitate. Um, I understand that, and but we can't we can't let ourselves be fooled. Um, we need to follow the data, and we need to follow this sense of community that I think is very transparent and changing people's lives, and you know the lives of like my family members and in my community. So, you know, I bring that as an elected official and as someone who wants to bring this kind of change. Like, I live in I so so I grew up at Twenty Third and Lawndale and couple of different places, but generally 23rd and Londo is where my family was from. And my wife grew up on 30th and Harding. We split the difference. We're now living on 30th and Londo, <laughs> uh, all in a little village. So, you know, we want our kids, our four and 10 year olds to grow up and, and, and make the choice that they want to live in the neighborhood that we all grew up in, right? There's, it makes sense to live in our community. Well, that means that, you know, we're investing in schools and, and it's a safe community. I want them to feel safe. I don't want to hear gunshots, um, but we all got to be in on that. I have two last questions and I want to uh, let you go here on that spirit of data and evidence. What are your thoughts, especially with superintendent Brown and this drumbeat of anti-bail reform and this like pointing the judges of always doing the wrong thing. You know, what's interesting about that is that this bail reform is being blamed for upticks in violence and it hasn't even been implemented yet. Uh, the majority of the state legislative yeah. work just happened. That's going to be, you know, uh, implemented soon, which I think will have, I think we're going to see the data and that, and, and I'm very hopeful. Um, and, and, and I think the data will indicate that past proves future that these types of reforms will actually will make our community safer. Um, I think we got to stop playing the blame game. Even in my critique of the mayor, I see her as part of the solution. She's got to be in. I've, I want to work with her to bring her in to create solutions to our, to our city. Yeah, I said earlier I'm disappointed, but I also said that I was happy that she worked with us to increase violence prevention money from zero to $50 million in the city budget, right, in a matter of a couple of years. 
Like we've got to do more of that and less of the anti-data stuff that has been presented by the mayor recently. We've got to stop the finger pointing because my mother told me, I remember this clearly and my mother, God rest her soul. Uh, she said, when you point a finger, there's three pointed right back at you. Right. Of course. So like, yeah. You know, yeah, let's stop that. Let's come together. Uh, let's create solutions rather than scapegoating others. Yeah. I, mean, I unlike, unfortunately, I'm going to criticize the media. Unlike the media in Chicago, I went and I made a lot of calls in Dallas to find out what was coming with Brown, mm. what he was, what his governing style was going to be, how he's going to run the department and pretty universal around the media that covered him was he is going to be pointing fingers. This mm. is what he does. Cause he just won't take responsibility for anything. Um, so I knew what was, what, what he's doing. I knew that was coming. Um, and it's like the Chicago two-step. And I try to tell people like, it's very hard to get, uh, police accountability legislation passed it all over the summer because violence upticks and now aldermen and the mayor are looking only for stuff that'll hit the media that makes it sound like they're doing something well regardless of whether they are or not is a question but as long as they look like they're doing something and that brings us to our last and final topic speaking of not doing anything except negative things the curfew yeah what are your thoughts? They increased it, I guess. What they basically do is it increased it by an hour. I don't understand. Like, there is no data. The the, the Marshall Project did a you know looked at stuff and did an article on it. There's really isn't data. This is supposed to help, but God Almighty, people wrap their arms around it so quickly. Let's tell a story about what inspired this change. There was a a, a terrible incident that happened in Millennium Park, where a young man, I think he was 17 shot and murdered uh, by the bean in Millennium Park. That's tragic. We shouldn't have that happen in our city. Mind you, that happens daily in other parts of the city, but um, this young man was shot and murdered at 7 p.m., right? Unacceptable situation. The curfew is being lowered from 11 p.m. to 10 p.m. Its intended purpose wouldn't even cover this incident, right? Um, so that's just to start. Let's look at the data. And study after study shows us that curfew laws actually are counterproductive. They keep people who follow the law off the streets. We actually need people who are productive members of our society to embrace community. This is the part of the love that we need to share and be a part of. Like we need people out engaging with each other. And yes, I, I agree. We shouldn't have bands of young people out at one in the morning with guns, I agree. There's ways to address that through our gun laws, through providing vital services in our neighborhoods, right? That aren't prevalent right now. Like there, there's ways to do this that actually get to the root causes of these issues. But that curfew law, as you so eloquently state, stated, Tracy, looks like you're doing something, but in reality is actually doing the opposite. And study to study shows it. Listen, what is this gonna do? Not much, it's gonna allow rich folks from the suburbs who can come and buy a ticket to Lollapalooza to be able to be downtown after certain hours. And young black and brown folks who may be their only opportunity uh, to find cultural enrichment outside of their communities is, is somewhere downtown. Their only way to find diversity in one of the most segregated places in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the country is downtown. You know, those rights are gonna be curtailed. Uh, it, uh, it, it smells fishy. Tracy, 
oh, well, you know, um, I do a bit of traveling and I was with my wife in Madrid. And on the first night we're there, we're with our cousin and drinking a lot. And I look on the screen, I'm like, I think there's a bunch of people complaining. I'm not good in Spanish. I'm language challenged, even though my wife's from Puebla. And um, and her family makes La Puebla. Puebla, Puebla. Yeah. And her family. By the way, real quick, real fun fact. Yeah. The only state in Mexico that actually celebrates Cinco de Mayo. But go ahead. Oh, no kidding. She grew up right on the, right on the fort. She grew up right by the fort. Beautiful. There's yeah. a great, okay. There's a great Netflix show that you got to check out by this Mexican historian. Uh, I think it's called, man, I'm, I hope I don't get this wrong. Frontera, I believe. And I forget his name. My wife just ordered the book, but it's a great Mexican history, um, history of Mexico that I think anybody would find fascinating. Um, but it speaks to Puebla. So your, your wife might love that. And it speaks to the, the, the Batalla de Puebla where uh, Mexicans defeated the French. Uh, we literally Not have for its independence, however. Yes, so. yes. So we um so I'm looking and I'm like, I think they're protesting 75 murders. So the next day I ask my the cousin we were out with, were they protesting 75 murders? He's like, No, we Madrid did have 75 murders, but they were protesting that 25 were domestic violence related. Yeah. And yes. I'm like, okay, that's bad. Right. But 75 murders, how big is Madrid? And at that point, it, I, it's bigger than Chicago population-wise. And then around it is super populated. I was like, holy shit, what is going on? He's like, why? I'm like, we have, at that point, we had five or 600 murders, right? Like five or 600 in Chicago, 75. It's like a picnic. Later that night, my wife and I are out about 11 o'clock walking around, touristing, you know? And what do I see? There is uh, a 70-year-old woman pushing her 90-year-old, probably mother, in a wheelchair, followed by her daughter and kids and everyone is out. Everyone is out. And I'm looking and I just sit down and my wife's like, what's going on? I'm like, look at this. What do you mean what's going on? Why do you think there's no crime and violence here? She's like, what are you like? Well, everyone's out. This was just a normal weeknight. This is just their culture. And that I'm old enough to where my mom grew up in the Italian ghetto. My dad grew up in the Polish ghetto. Um, White Flight moved them out to Norwich by O'Hare. But I grew up when I was little, my, we were, on a summer night, it was nice out. We were on the stoop. We weren't watching television. We were sitting on the stoop outside and all of our neighbors were. We all knew everyone. Everyone got along. And well, that also reduces crime and violence when everyone's out and engaged and watching their kids. Right? James Jacobs, great yeah. author from the 60s. She speaks about uh, the, the density and people being on the streets as like crime prevention, et cetera. You know, you know what this speaks to? And I'm just driven to talk about um, the conservative contradiction in our country. The conservative contradiction is that they're supposed to be about the land of the free and about liberty and about freedom of markets and freedom of this and freedom of that. But at every turn, they wanna control black and brown folks and immigrants oh, yeah. and minority populations and, 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 and religions like Jewish folk, et cetera, right? Muslims. And, you know, I think about the issues around choice in this country, access to guns, like, you, you know, what can you control and what can't you control? And it's the conservative conundrum, the conservative contradiction that's really led to this MAGA uh, influence yeah. in, in this country. And, to be honest with you, has infiltrated 
the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, which comes in the form of curfew laws, which yeah. comes in the form of police-only mantras. Um, by the way, even if we were to hire more police in our city, they wouldn't be ready to be on our streets until a year and a half from now, right? Like, right. So I'm sorry, I got in a soapbox after That's your right. soapbox. Forgive me. Well, I was just saying- It was a good no, soapbox, by the way. Madrid. No problem, no yeah, what I was saying is, my point really was like, to some degree, I think America has lost their ethnic, their the ethnic something about their the ethnic upbringing that people brought with from other countries, mm. right? Because that that sitting on the curb wasn't an American thing. That's what people did in the old country. That's mm. what they did, and they brought that with them. And now we're just all shelled in our house watching television, hoping the police solve whatever's going on in the street. If I did something wrong in my neighborhood. And one of the people that knew my parents saw it, they weren't calling the cops. They were going to call my parents. I mean, that's what they were going to do. Um, and I, I just think we've lost some of that. And people want to say, well, it's because we've, the parents are getting worse. Instead of like, no, especially in black and brown communities, like the poverty is unbelievable. Besides the fact you look at Cabrini Green, right? The rehab of public housing. The few people that did get housing when they, built up, you know, the mixed income areas, they had to sign these huge contracts. And one of the things in the huge contracts over by Cabrini was you couldn't be on your front porch. You could only be in your backyard. You could only have people over to a certain time. It's like the contract was set up to isolate them. And so I, I, I've always like, we've lost this, whatever our parents coming in from other countries and everyone's parents or grandparents did. There's no such thing as a white American, um, right? That doesn't exist. My friends, I know you're upset about that if you're listening, but that is true. So you've, you've come from somewhere. We, whatever they brought with them, we've lost that. And the culture actually drives crime and violence, the, the creation of crime and violence. So you look at immigrants, it's not first generation immigrants that cause violence, right? that are engaging in violence at levels equal to the Americans. It's actually second second generation. Why? Because they're, they're culturized to American. Isolation, individualism, not dealing and with- And by the way, in my third and fourth generation, it, it goes into the negative. Yes, well, yes, but they, oh, people get older and they, yes, but that's what it is, right? Um, and when people say, oh, see, you're saying immigrants do it. I'm like, no, it's the kids of immigrants that by the way, commit this at the same level that American kids that are not, are long, much further along with immigrants. We're disproportionately under-resourced. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, are in segregated communities again, um, et cetera, so. Yeah, because you know, those kids on the street corner are just passing up those union factory jobs, paying 25 bucks an hour to go hang on the corner. They're just bypassing it because they're lazy. I'd love to take people. I always used to, when people came to visit me in Chicago, especially from Mexico, I would take them on the South and West sides. I'm like, you have to get outside the potted plants to see Chicago. Because they look at downtown, they're like, oh my God, this is the most amazing city ever. Yes, and I love Chicago, it's beautiful. But let me give you a little bit of what's actually, you know, a little more of what's actually going on in big swaths. Well, we, are the the great, we are the best city. I'm not moving anywhere. You're, oh no, I love you're, it. You're coming back soon, I'm sure. Yeah. No, uh, I love it. It just needs improvement. We cannot rest on our laurels. We, we Every day we got to be fighting for a better neighborhood and for a better city and you know, we do that by being all in, by the Chicago Justice Project, you know, yeah. keep on doing what it's doing. Uh, and, I, and I support what you guys are doing 100%. Let's keep on working together. 
Um, and, you know, let's bring everybody in. All right. Michael Rodriguez, 22nd Ward Alderman. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. All right. Okay. I want to thank Alder person, 22nd Ward Alder person, Michael Rodriguez for jumping on the pod. We really appreciate um, the effort it took, Michael. We appreciate the time. These are certainly difficult issues to resolve in Chicago. There's no doubt about it. Mayor Lightfoot campaigned as a massive reformer. I guess when she would say she was a she's a reformer in that she thinks that the CPD should, in the lamest possible ways, abide by the consent decree. And I saw a uh, I can't I remember who said it from the ACLU, but there's a, a quote in, that was in the newspaper that I steal all the time, which basically is the, the consent decree should not be the ceiling, it should be the floor, which means it's the bare minimum of reform and there are more reforms possible. So I invite everyone to go to our website and go to the news section, you can look, you can, you can find there our policy recommendations, policies that the city council, Cook County Board and Illinois General Assembly can um, put up, pass, and basically make a major difference in policing. The Anjanette Young Ordinance, we're huge uh, proponents of that. We need bright lines for what the police can and cannot do, and we need to make it so when they go beyond those lines without due justification, whether it's racist, whatever it is, the reason, there are clear, definitive punishments for that, whether that is, uh, and it has to be beyond police policy. So I'm not talking about the the legislature subverting the police uh, policies that that work internal to their police accountability system that is broken and doesn't work and never has worked in Illinois. And I have to help set up a bunch of it now, and it doesn't work. But I think like the Anjanette Young Ordinance, you can't do a search warrant outside of 9 to 7, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. And it should be done ideally during school hours so kids are not there, unless there are exigent circumstances. Seems perfectly reasonable to me. That seems a perfectly reasonable. Now, you fail to do this. We have to start getting the General Assembly to put teeth into that and make sure if they do break that law, it is not a slap on the wrist, but it's a serious punishment. It's incredibly hard to convict officers of anything, no matter how far they step over the lines. Don't be fooled by George Floyd. That's um, more or less a mirage. Don't be fooled by that. There's no reason to think those, the rate of convicting officers is going to go up. We need laws that make that easier when they step out of line. But now I think good officers will take those bright lines that are clearly defined by the General Assembly and say, I'm not going to go do that. No, 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 that's wrong. The public has said it's wrong. The public said they don't want us to do that. I'm not going to do it. Uh, because they certainly are not restrained by their policies and practices. It certainly seems like they go to any length they can to just go right over them without a care in the world about the accountability system. Don't listen to the police union. Don't listen to their supporters in the city council, the general assembly, the police accountability system is broken. We did a, uh, we did a little study and looked at 40 years of data on the police accountability system in Chicago and the highest rate we could get of sustaining complaints against officers was eight and a half percent. That's not even what the recommendation discipline is. We looked at 10 years of firing officers from 99 to 2008 
And at that point, there was 37% of officers that were up for firing got fired, about one third, right? And we now know from the, the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General's report last year that 75% of the cases for which officers sought to appeal their discipline, you can't do that for um, you can't do that for termination case, you have to go in front of the police board, but stuff for minor, more or less, less minor than stuff that you would get fired for. 75% of the times those officers grieve those cases. The discipline was either reduced or completely removed. So don't buy it that the system works. So um, that's my two cents or a little more than my two cents on the issue. We have some great interviews coming up. We've had some scheduling problems. So that's why it's been a while since we've had a podcast. We're working with Jody Cohn from ProPublica to get something scheduled. We're working with Dan Milahopoulos from WBEZ to get something scheduled. We're working with Professor Vargas, who runs the Criminal Justice Project, if I got the name right, and University of Chicago. So those three are going. We have a bunch of invitations out. I also had my glasses that broke and uh, couldn't really read for three weeks. So that put a, uh, a little crimp and putting the podcast out also. But I'm back in full power. We have invitations out. We're hoping to get more things scheduled. Um, and like I said, if you got ideas for who you want on the podcast, reach out at any of our social media or info, chicagojustice.org, and we will definitely listen. Thank you once again. Go to our website, donate. Go to our social media, click on those links, go donate, or hit us up at info, chicagojustice.org, and help us raise money. All right, hopefully we will see you next week. Have a great day. Bye.